This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, Season 6, Episode 3. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, brought to you by Mountain Man Medical, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network of podcasts. Today is Wednesday, April 13th, 2022, as of the recording of this episode, and I am your host, Riley Bowman, joined today by Matthew Marister, Mr. Producer. What's up, man? Doing good, man. Glad to be here. Glad to talk with you about some important news. This is our news and reviews episode or full name would be the industry news and gear reviews episode meaning that today we're going to cover some of the more recent industry news that is relevant that we think you should know or you should hear about and also later on in the episode uh, matthew and i will both provide our own gear reviews of a couple of products uh looking forward to to that as well i've got i i think i've got a good one i don't know uh might not be as interesting or as may not be there may not be as much interest in it by some of our listeners or viewers, uh, but some of you I think will be very intrigued by my pick. And then we'll hear about, uh, I guess, an update from Matthew. I know you've talked about that a little bit before, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, we'll, we'll see uh, how that how that's coming. Right. Yeah. Uh, today's episode is sponsored and brought to you by Barrel Block. Barrel Block is, I think the smartest and safest choice for conducting dry fire practice in your homes, in your offices, in your garages, wherever it is you choose to set up your dry fire dojo. Barrel block is the way to do that with your live firearm in a essentially a safe inert fashion. Barrel block device by inserting itself through or by inserting it, it it doesn't insert itself, but by inserting it into the chamber of your firearm and having it pass all the way through the barrel, not only does it give you a visual indicator that it is blocked, but number two gives you a blocked chamber that prevents any ammunition or anything from getting into the chamber, into the gun, even if live ammunition were accidentally introduced into the dry fire training environment. And that is key. It also gives, uh, for those of you that care, the uh, barrel block product also provides a striking surface for the striker or firing pin of your gun. It's a cool, innovative, affordably priced product. Again, we think is the way to properly and safely conduct dry fire practice with your live gun in the comfort of your home or wherever you choose to do it. So I encourage you to check out Barrel Block today by going to BarrelBlock.com. That's Barrel Block with a K B A R R E L B L O K dot com to pick one up. All right, very very affordably priced. Available in multiple calibers for most of your common handguns, especially semi-automatic ones. Uh, unfortunately, it's by nature of how the product is designed, it's kind of impossible to have uh, uh, such a product available for revolvers. But uh, fortunately, probably for most of you, most of you care primarily about semi-automatics also available in 556 223 uh, chamberings for your rifles your ars and so forth um, so and other calibers will, will come out here soon too in fact so check it out barrel block that's barrel block with a k dot com also today's oh i was gonna mention one other thing with that uh, if you missed it 
a couple episodes ago, me and Jacob did a, or maybe it was last week. Last I think week, it was last week. Before, uh, we Jacob and I did an episode about conducting dry fire safely. Uh, so, uh, and we talked about it quite a bit in that episode. So, if you missed that, it's a good one to go listen to. Uh, make sure that you're doing the the best, you know, conducting the the best practices with respect to conducting dry fire safely. Also, today, today's episode is sponsored by Range Tech Shot Timers. Uh, that's my shot timer product of choice. Here's mine right here, or one of mine. I got a couple of them. This is actually a test unit, but uh, Range Tech Shot Timer. It is the most affordably priced, legit shot timer in the market. By that, I mean like, yeah, you can go get some of these pseudo shot timer products, uh, apps and things that exist on like phones and mobile devices and whatnot, but none of them work as well as a true standalone shot timer device, mostly because of hardware limitations. So the Range Tech Shot Timer is an innovative and unique approach to shot timer shot time capturing uh, using this Bluetooth device that connects to the Range Tech Shot Timer app on your mobile device. Available on Android and Apple platforms as well. And all you gotta do is connect this via Bluetooth to your device. The device is, is controlled through the application. It works incredibly well and is affordably priced, allowing you to conduct drive or conduct live fire training and practice uh, very effectively. You can even save your practice data uh, to the cloud and review it later. It's a very, very powerful uh, way of approaching your live fire practice. So really today we're talking about uh, both a dry fire and a live fire product. Should also say that there's also ways to use shot timers in dry fire practice as well. In fact, I encourage that practice even. So pick up a Range Tech shot timer today. Again, very affordably priced. Go check it out at rangetechtimer.com. And we appreciate your support of our sponsors that make it possible for us to do this podcast. Let's get into our industry news. First up, Matthew, I've been talking for a minute. I'm going to hand the lead over to you on this concealedcarry.com article written by you. Mm-hmm. Ruger safety bulletin for some SR-22 handguns. This is right at the top, right at the lead of our episode today because things like this is, I mean, this is really important stuff. Anytime we have a product out there, a firearm, a handgun, anything like that, that particularly has some kind of safety issue, uh, we're going to try to bring that to you first so that you hopefully hear it and are aware of it so you can check it out. And you're going to want to pay, if you own a Ruger SR-22 uh, 22 caliber pistol, you're going to want to pay close attention uh, to your serial numbers because that's going to be real relevant as to whether you need to send yours in for repair or not. So Matthew, tell us a little bit more about this. Yeah, just uh, really quickly, if you have a SR-22, you might want to check this article. It talks about the um, how you can identify your serial number. So any serial number um, 369-40078 or lower, uh, including those with the SS serial numbers, are subject to this recall. And basically what happens is um, there's an issue where I guess the left and right, it says the left and right, a, a very small number of pistols appear to be affected. Um, the left and right frame inserts of the Ruger SR-22 pistols are not properly secured together, and the firing pin blocker, lifter, and hammer block can move independently of each other, potentially rendering them ineffective. So um, basically, you know, you you go to, um, on these pistols, there's a decocking uh, safety. So when you hit that safety, it decocks that hammer. 
Um, apparently that might not actually, it might decock it, but the safety block might, um, or safety pin blocker may not engage and allow a round to, to go off. That's, that's apparently, um, seems to be a possibility. So that would be a safety issue, of, of course. So um, on the website, just make sure if you check out this web, uh, this uh, article, there's a link of how you can uh, contact Ruger, send your pistol in for examination or, or, uh, or retrofit or however they're fixing this. Yeah. So it sounds like, I mean, there, you, you gave us a bunch of, you know, fancy engineering speak for, what's going on there but basically it sounds like that on some pistols that exhibit this condition there may be a uh, a condition a situation where you number one it sounds like it's a problem that is identified by what they refer to as a slack trigger when you shouldn't have a slack trigger and and then what that sometimes leads people to doing is uh is like decocking the gun or trying to you know troubleshoot what the issue you know like why they have a slack trigger when they shouldn't and in the course of decocking it or placing the gun back on safe it may be discharging instead when it shouldn't be that is a big 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 concern now let's be clear anytime we decock a pistol for those pistols that have a decocker on them should always be done in a safe direction regardless right uh just as any gun handling should be done in a safe direction but uh in this case i mean it's never a good thing when you um are intending to decock a pistol, that means you don't intend to fire it. And if it all of a sudden goes bang instead of click, um, that's that's a problem. Looks like serial numbers 369-40078 or lower are the ones that are affected by this safety bulletin. And the other thing that's important to know, if you do own or happen to have one of these affected pistols, I thought it was pretty interesting, Matthew, and you bolded this this uh this this step or this sentence in your article um it's important to know if you experience this slack trigger condition essentially that means like when you're expecting to fire the gun but instead the trigger just moves as though um you know it, for instance a lot of guns like if you lock the slide to the rear and you kind of have this slack trigger condition that's kind of what we're talking about here but in this case you have a gun that's fully in battery loaded magazine inserted into the gun if you experience a slack trigger condition when it shouldn't be a slack trigger condition the steps are outlined here in the article but number one is do not attempt to remedy the matter by engaging the safety lever that's in bold that's just really important it sounds like again there's some problems with engaging that safety lever or decocking the pistol and having it suddenly discharge at that time so essentially says do not touch the safety lever in any way remove the magazine from the pistol Rack the slide and eject any rounds that are in the chamber. Um, make the gun, you know, uh, visually and physically clear uh, before doing anything else with it. And then, of course, sending it in, especially if it is under the uh, serial numbers listed. All right. Important to know. Let's get now to this is really the meat of today's show. Probably should have saved it later in the episode, you know, because that would keep people all around maybe longer <laughs> if they're wanting to hear our take on this. But you should know we have some other important news, and we're doing our gear reviews later on in the episode. You want to stick around for those, too, so you hear what we talk about and what uh, what we have to say about those, those products. But what we have here is a new regulation from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, uh, commonly referred to as the ATF. Uh, they, last fall, had a comment period for these very rules. 
apparently they received just shy of uh, 270,000 comments on this proposed rule. That's pretty significant. Although I kind of wonder, you know, there, there's a lot of gun owners out there that this potential, I mean, this affects obviously everybody ultimately, but maybe we could have had even more comments than that. Just a thought, you know, it's important to be engaged in the process. Um, this, according to Amoland.com, uh, this, uh, this new ruling was submitted to the federal register. Now, Matthew, I I've seen where it says here 180 days, but I've also seen it reported elsewhere, 120 days. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe the date that goes into effect is the early part of August. So let's see, May, June, July. That sounds like four months, bro. So that's, I, I think the 180 days might be a misprint in this case. So I've been going off that 120 day uh, uh, time frame. So basically, when you have a federal agency, or even when Congress passes a law and is signed by the president, and things go into the Federal Register, which is where all the laws are collectively published and assembled, uh, from the point that this new rule from the ATF is published, 120 120 days from now, it'll go into effect. What this essentially is is making the idea or the concept or the practice of privately manufactured firearms, particularly those that are of the Palmer 80 type variety, the 80% lower type variety, uh, essentially going to be made illegal, at least as we commonly know them to exist. Meaning that currently an 80% lower is just a, is just a piece of plastic or a piece of aluminum or a piece of, of material that isn't yet made into a functioning fire. Right. Uh, and the idea here being is that, that it, and it's a, not a perfectly defined moment in time as a gun's being manufactured, but there's a point when guns are being manufactured, when a frame in particular is being manufactured uh, and frame is an important, uh, uh, you know, word to use. It's a, it has an important def- definition as far as what that is exactly. When that's being manufactured, about the 80% point, once we cross that threshold, that's got to be stamped and identified with a serial number that's recorded. And then, of course, that's, you know, that, that, that then from that point forward, as soon as that serial number is stamped on a receiver, is considered a firearm. And now we got to go through a dealer to purchase, right? Or there's got to be paperwork at least involved in purchasing. So 80% lowers are those or or 80% receivers that haven't yet crossed that threshold. You buy, you finish the manufacturing process yourself, you turn it into a functioning firearm, and voila, away you go. Perfectly legal to do. It's been a thing in this country for pretty much all of recorded time that private citizens, private individuals can manufacture a firearm of, of their own make for their own private purposes, right? And even as today's law currently stands, you make a firearm for your own use. You can do, you can do that as much as you want. You can make as many of them as you want. You just can't make them with the intent of distributing them or with the intent of selling them or with the intent of, uh, of making money from them. Okay. So the, 
it's this is a completely legal thing. Now, we're just in a time and a day and an age when technology has made it so much easier for impractical, right? I mean, we have these these kits essentially that you buy, comes with a jig, take it home, you know, some tools you'd use. I mean, you could use just a Dremel, although I don't recommend it necessarily. You won't always get super awesome quality results just with a Dremel, unless you're really good, really skilled, and really careful. Um, I, I've i been involved in the manufacture of one of these and used a, uh, a, a drill press and essentially the, the equivalent of a, of a mill, which made it a lot easier to do in a precise fashion and get a quality product at, at, the, at the end. I've seen some images of, of like polymer 80 guns, Matthew, that, that just look terrible. You know, <laughs> people have just hacked on, you know, look like they cut them with a, in fact, I remember coming across one that a guy posted an image of, and he basically cut all the excess material off with a utility knife, just little by little. <laughs> I mean, it just looked hacked. It just looked hacked up, you know, just terrible. And, and so, uh, just cause you buy one of these kits and, and go to town making one does not mean you're going to make a quality, firearm it does not mean it's going to work or function as it should or reliably even <laughs> and i'll say even the one that i manufactured um is uh uh not 100 percent uh, reliable and i've and it's a strange thing because i've worked on it considerably and tried to troubleshoot and uh haven't yet quite identified what it is because it's so intermittent that I can't quite nail down what the variable is, you know, the common variable that's leading to the malfunction. It's kind of irritating and frustrating. And that's, you know, I, I, I was very, very careful when it was made and did, I think, a pretty awesome job. But it's a, it's a homemade gun, essentially, right? And yes, that was made for my personal use, okay? Just so you know. And I still have it in possession. <laughs> now, and you all know what I got, at least one thing. So um, this is established. So basically, these types of things are going to be required to be serialized in order for them to be sold. And that means it also has to be sold through federally licensed dealers. Uh, it means that you'll have to fill out an ATF form 4473 each time you buy one of these. This is ridiculous. Now, there's also some thought, too, that, that this is going to be extended or has the potential to be extended uh, to... Uh, requiring serialization of other components. Um, I've heard some whisperings about upper receivers on AR-15s being required to be a serialized part and so forth. Very, very concerning, as for, at least in terms of a, an infringement upon law-abiding citizens' rights. The argument, of course, is that these ghost guns are being taken advantage of and being manufactured by criminals and then used in the commission of crimes at an alarming rate. Now, I'm not going to deny that that's, I mean, that, that is a thing. I, I, have, I have seen legit reporting on crimes committed where it was mentioned, like sometimes I see things reported and I'm like, oh, I don't know if I believe that or not. Um, but I've seen some some news reports and stories out there of various criminals that were caught in 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 the uh, commission of a crime and guns were seized and you know police reported one of them or some of them as being a ghost gun and there's an image of the confiscated gun and yeah sure enough it's it's a it's a essentially a 
Palmer 80 or similar type gun that, that, that the criminal has in possession. So I'm not going to deny that that's hap- that it's, uh, happening. Um, but how much or how to what extent is that happening? That's a question. That's a question that honestly nobody can answer accurately. Mm-hmm. Uh, not even the ATF can act, can answer that question exactly. But what it's cl- what is clear is that the media, and particularly the White House and the ATF, is presenting this as though it is rampant, mm-hmm. as though this is like the new norm, that this is, you know, that there's this vast uncoordinated conspiracy amongst criminals to uh, make ghost guns, right? And I don't believe that's the case, all right? I don't think that these ghost guns are, well, 41% of what's confiscated on the streets, according to one source, all right? I think that is uh is is a is a very much trumped up number now some of these numbers are coming out of california and i think like one of the more famous ones involved uh former atf agent uh carino or canica yeah carino i think was his name canino 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 uh who was uh oh what was his actually actual title apparently you see former special Uh-oh. agent in charge of the atf's los angeles field division carlos a canino says so this is according to another article on amaland.com called not even atf can verify atf's ghost gun claims and it said that he can be cre- cre- credited for jumpstarting the war on homemade firearms uh because it's known that he in talking with um uh an anti-gun organization uh, talked about the prevalence of homemade firearms in california and he referenced and said, actually, the real numbers of ghost guns being seized on the streets are much higher. 41% or almost half our cases we're coming across are these ghost guns. And nobody can actually verify that statistic or that claim. And he no longer works for the ATF. In fact, is retired, is my understanding, um, and will not speak further about this issue when he's been con- uh, contacted. Um, but here's what I was going to say about California, Matthew. I think we may be seeing an unintended consequence of strict gun control measures passed in a state like California, particularly with such things like their registration scheme and their whole um, approved gun list, right? How many people have I heard talk about, oh, I wish I could get such and such gun because, you know, it's not on California's approved list, but I can't. And so I, Specifically, like if I'm not mistaken, I don't think Glock or Gen Four or newer Glocks are on the approved list, Correct. but Gen Threes are and earlier are. And so, just as an example, right? So um, I think potentially we are th- that. Here's here. And this is this is speculation, but I I think it there's something maybe to this. I definitely could see it being more prevalent in a state like California, where laws have been passed in such a way that it actually has encouraged the practice of homemade firearms to, to, you know, because you have, I mean, so much has been restricted according to approved list. Now I know criminals aren't necessarily going to follow uh, laws anyway, but um, it wouldn't surprise me at all if an unintended co- consequence of 
some of the laws California has passed has led to a higher than average, you know, when you look at it compared to nationwide, uh, proliferation of so-called ghost guns in, in, a, in the state of California. I could see that being a thing. Uh, it, it's just like human nature, you know, like, well, let's see, you know, they did this and they did that. And, it, you know, it, it even has made it a little bit more difficult for criminals to get their hands on certain things. Well, I'll just go do this other thing. Mm-hmm. So the reality is we know that even with passing this, this, it's not a law. This is a, a reinterpretation of existing law, this whole, this new ATF rule. Um, but by doing so, like, it's not going to guarantee, I mean, it's not going to stop criminals from getting a hold of guns. And, yeah. and they're just going to go to the next thing, if there is a next thing. Or they're going to continue doing whatever. Or, I mean, this might lead to an influx of 3D printers. And they just start printing their own stuff and <laughs> making it into guns. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's no yeah. stopping this. Ultimately. Yeah. And you made, I mean, those are all really good points. I, I didn't I didn't think about, you know, you bringing up the unintended consequences. And that that's a, that's a smart point that um, it, it may very well be, you know, ring true. Um, but you know, what's interesting is that, you know, you, you, you commented that the data that they're using to go after the homemade guns is, is unsubstantiated. It's very, it's very nebulous. It's very, there's no real, no one has definitively said, you know, when they tell you how many guns are being, uh, confiscated. This could be, you know, one dude with 15, you know, maybe they raid some guy who's making 15, you know, ghost guns and they count that, you know, in their count, it had um, guns that were involved in homicides and attempted murders. So these could be, I mean, I, I guess what I'm saying is it's very difficult for me to get behind uh, to, to understand the numbers when somebody, when, when they're not being direct and um, forthcoming with where they're getting the numbers from. So first of all, that's a red flag. And before you go forward, you need to stop and say, let's first get the information. Because if the information says it's overwhelming and if we, you know, remove these, then crime will stop. Well, then you can go forward and have the, con- you know, the, the conversation, but we can't even get past that. And secondly, like, I would be interested, you know, like, I don't think gun, the, you know, this and, and anybody who's bought a polymer 80, by the time you buy the, the kit and you get a drill press or a Dremel tool or whatever, and you buy all the, the, the kit, the, the, the parts kit and the, and the, the slide and you're, you're in probably the same amount as you would any other gun. Right. Like you're right around the same price. It's not like you're, you're being able to build a, a gun for 50 bucks when it costs 500 in the store. So they're, they're, they're framing this like, well, you could go in the store and buy this kit for, you know, really cheap. Anyone can buy it and then you can assemble this. Well, that 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 gun, the, 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 whatever they're spending on the polymer 80 kit, they can still go and buy a, a stolen gun from their buddy. Right. That's. That has gun. I mean, how they've been getting them before the polymer 80s were a big deal. So I don't think that I think this is kind of like a red herring, like they're looking at 
crime. They're looking at, you know, problems in the city. They can't control things. Um, they're unable to address violence. And so what do they do? They say, well, it, let's just attack the this low-hanging fruit of polymer 80 guns. And honestly, like, I don't even think that this is going to have that much effect because from what I understand, at least how it is phrased now, you can still buy a polymer 80 frame. You just can't buy a kit with all the, all the components at once, right? Like you could still buy an 80% lower. You just can't buy it with the kit or with the parts kit and with the jig and with everything combined. Right. And you can still possess it. Uh, you can still possess one, but now if you take it into a, you know, a, a somebody, a gunsmith to get work on it. Now he has to, if he's an FFL, has to take right. it and put it. So it's like, I, I'm not really sure that this is going to have the effect that ever, that they're saying it would. Um, I think this is just kind of a posturing thing because, you know, the administration has ran on like, I'm going to take your AR-15s and we're coming after the NRA. We're going to bankrupt. And overwhelmingly, they keep getting you know, thwarted in every legislative attack across the states. States legislatures are saying we support the Second Amendment and he needs to do something coming up to the the election, the midterms to say, look, at we scored one. We we beat the, you know, I don't know. I might be cynical, but I, I think that that has something to do with this. Oh, of course. I mean, it, it, uh, w- it was like a year ago, April last year. So just a couple months after uh, Biden was sworn into office um, that he directed the ATF to come up with these new rules. And it wasn't just these 80% receivers uh, stuff. It was uh, also um, uh, looking at braces and a bunch of other mm-hmm. uh you know, categories as well that the ATF's looking at redefining. And braces is, by the way, the next thing. Uh, I don't think we have the official rule yet on that, but it's coming. And also there's been uh, some recent news. We, ha- we have a story about it coming up here in a moment about uh, the uh, forced reset triggers uh, as well. So uh, there's, there's this is all part of, you know, it's all going back to, I mean, I, I believe it was initiated primarily by Biden and his administration as part of essentially their campaign promises to their to their supporters uh, to uh, you know to come after gun control, right, or to institute more gun control. So, uh, yeah, um, couple. So, by the way, we we post a bunch of links along with the show notes today. Uh, that are all related to this topic. Many of them come from AmmoLand.com. I want to recognize them and, and say to them, like, solid reporting mm-hmm. on uh, the, this whole issue. Lots of really good information. Lots of really good reporting at, at AmmoLand.com um, on this very, very issue. Another article, Justice Department announces new rule to modernize firearm definitions. And again, they re- they reference, this is a graph that's that comes from that ATF uh, uh, press release, the Department of Justice press release, actually, uh, that shows the number of suspected uh, homemade firearms by calendar year. And what I thought was interesting, Matthew, is that this number is very different than, or at least those mm-hmm. numbers are very different than the numbers that were provided by a spokesperson from the ATF, uh, Mr. Eric Longnecker. Uh, when he was asked directly, he provided 
some some a very different look right. uh, numbers wise. So basically, ATF can't even like properly source or provide sourcing or back up information that's been published elsewhere uh, with respect to like what is the true number of so-called uh, privately manufactured firearms or privately made firearms or ghost guns uh, being you know picked up by law enforcement on crime scenes across America and then submitted to the ATF for tracing. So um, also wanted to highlight some of the stuff that President Biden said the other day as he had his press conference about uh, this new ATF rule. Uh, number one, is kind of humorous that he couldn't refer to uh, ATF consistently as ATF. He frequently referred to the ATF as AFT, which is funny because uh, that's already been a thing within the gun community, like sort of like a code word that like that's you know, we often refer to ATF as AFT as sort of a way of avoiding being picked up by bots and search engine optimization and so forth. So I thought that was kind of funny. Um, and, and he says he also, this is according to an article, by the way, on MLN, Biden bumbles through latest attack on homemade guns. And it also says here, he spoke of a place in Delaware where he did a lot of hunting. He claimed that when the second amendment was written, you could not buy a cannon which we know to be false. In fact, many of the cannons initially used in the Revolutionary War actually came from privately, you know, uh, from private companies and, and organizations and people and individuals, private privateers, ship owners, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there's, nothing could be further from the truth that you couldn't buy a cannon in 1776 or 1791, okay? So, Yeah. Good to know your facts on such stuff. <laughs> uh, apparently, also Biden noted that part of the new rules would be a requirement that gun dealers add serial numbers to privately made firearms they bought from others. Biden is apparently unaware of the fact that privately made firearms may not be sold under most circumstances. I already talked about that earlier about how you may make your own firearm for your own personal use and enjoyment and may not make it to sell, may not make it to distribute, may not make it to profit from. There are circumstances where you can sell them or or uh, uh, transfer them to others, and uh, uh, but those are those are limited circumstances. And I, I believe that in those circumstances, you a dealer would probably end up serializing them anyway mm -hmm. if you're going to actually have a dealer transfer those for, uh, that for you. So, so that basically is a, a null and voided point. Uh, finally, a couple more things here. A couple other articles we have posted. Again, you can go read all these for yourself. There's actually a pretty interesting article from Vice News. Uh, Vice sometimes surprises me and uh, as far as how good they do with their reporting. And, of course, sometimes they disappoint me with how poorly they do. I mean, the, the poorly side of things uh, doesn't uh, necessarily surprise me a lot of times. Um, but uh, it's more expected. But it is, this is a pretty good article. Uh, and they're basically quoting, including from uh, former chief of the ATF's firearms technology branch, Rick Vasquez. Uh, they're quoting from him saying how this new ATF ruling is not going to have any effect on reducing um, uh, crime, violent crime in America or the proliferation of arms amongst criminals. So uh, pretty interesting stuff there. Again, you can go check out that article. I think there's some pretty solid points made in that article. Uh, and then finally, and I got an article here 
Uh, it's called new gun buyers not buying gun control. I think this is particularly relevant because mm-hmm. we just added a bunch of new gun owners over the last couple of years. And basically what this is saying, inc- including referencing a um, National Opinion Research Center poll or, or survey that even the new the newest gun owners, which are more widely demographically diverse than any previous time, essentially, amongst gun owners, uh, that essentially their views align quite well with other gun, gun owners, even though they're demographically very different. Uh, they may even be very different on a lot of other political issues, but they're essentially the, the survey is suggesting that on gun-related issues, these new gun owners are aligning very similarly to already existing gun owners. And that's pretty interesting to read. So it's, it's an interesting article also you can go read. Uh, and now it's another one from MLN.com. Yeah, I, I think that it, that last one you mentioned about um, the demographics uh, is something that the politicians on either side are not there. They have a blind spot to it because guns traditionally have been a Republican Democrat issue. Right. Um, and with all the violence that happened, with the even though Republicans have sold us out to, right, uh, of course, of Let's course. <laughs> yeah. They, I'm, I'm not saying that, but, but uh, I understand what you're saying, I, but traditional form, basis that right on a platform basis individually republicans are just as bad as democrats and all the other acts that you have in there but uh traditionally right but what i'm saying is that you know we've shifted from the idea and and they're still holding on to this idea that like gun owners are you know living in trailer in west virginia and they're all you know hillbillies and that's the only people who own guns or maybe you hunt and you hear this over and over. I'm a, I'm a, I support the Second Amendment. I'm a hunter. Well, guess what? Like some people don't hunt. I don't hunt. A lot of gun owners don't hunt. They have a firearm for for self defense, and it doesn't matter if they're a Republican or a Democrat or anything. They want to be able to defend themselves, and they've seen the inability of law enforcement or unwillingness in in whatever, however you look at it, to defend them. And they say, I want to be able to defend myself. I want to, you know, and so um, that is a non-party issue. And so I think that they're losing the grasp, the control of that issue now. And it's gone into, you know, a a sweeping um, universal message of, yeah, guns are important because the government is taking rights away at an astounding, you know, or willing to. um, And we see it all over the world. And I think people are just waking up to it and it scares them. And so, uh, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. you know, what's interesting. Uh, and I like, I need to do a little digging on this and see if there's more data on this, but, uh, hunting or hunters is not what's driving, uh, the firearm industry at this current time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's an estimated 15 point, Two million hunters in the United States, at least hunting license holders. This, according to uh, Stacker.com, uh, we've got more concealed carry permittees than that now, and that number has switched in the last couple of years. That's pretty fascinating. Okay, so what's driving gun sales more than anything now is more on the defensive side of things than it is hunting, by a good measure. I would say. 
just something to think about, especially if you're a politician listening to this. And we have had them. Yeah. So, so uh, we got to save some time for other things. Matthew, tell us real quick about the ATF trying to broaden the definition of a machine gun. Yeah, and this is just really briefly, you guys have probably seen this um, in regards to the ongoing drama that is going on with rare breeds, uh, forced reset trigger. Um, The ATF uh, is governing by definition right now, and uh, by changing the definition can outright make certain classes of you know, components or maybe a complete firearm in, in, you know, in cases, um, you know, recategorize that into a, um, in this case, a machine gun. So they're categorizing this uh, force reset trigger and saying that by the new definition or the interpretation, what they're saying uh, is that it doesn't require individual presses of the trigger to fire uh, successive rounds and therefore they've interpreted it as a machine gun. And then therefore uh, it would need um, you would need to um, get a license right for that. Um, and you'd pay your tax. A, yeah. You'd have to go through the, uh, through the NFA process, right through the NFA. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like yep. if you had a suppressor or wanted to buy a yep. completely fully automatic in. machine. Yep. But, and even that you can't do it on newly manufactured uh, machine guns. Right. So, right. After uh, 1986. So, so yes, this basically makes forced reset triggers illegal period. Mm-hmm. Yep. The only people to be able to possess one would be uh, class three dealers. Properly licensed dealers. Right. Sorry, I keep interrupting you. No, no. I mean, that that's that's the wrap-up. I mean, yep. uh, it, it's the ATF stepping in again, and uh, we see this. There's no uh, – they can't get this passed legislatively, and so uh, this is how they're going to uh, attack the Second Amendment. Yeah. I think this one has the greatest chance of being – well, I think the last thing we're talking about Okay, regarding the eighty uh, percent receivers, has is going to be challenged, and oh, sure. uh, in fact, the firearm po- firearms policy coalition has already you know made it clear that they uh, are intent on suing and are looking for plaintiffs to take that case too. Um, the uh, this machine gun thing has the greatest chance, I think, of dismissal by a court, uh, simply uh, because like the, this. The ATF, in order to make these forced reset triggers not comply with the current definition, they got to change the definition. Mm-hmm. The definition for the longest time, one of the critical, like key points of of what a machine gun is, is that the gun fires more than one round for one action of the trigger. Okay, so like machine gun, you press trigger once, you get multiple bullets. Right. The idea behind these forced reset triggers and other similar triggers is that there's really got to be two actions that take place to get more than one round. Right. So your pull, your the trigger's got to go back and the trigger's got to go forward. And if you read the language, it's pretty clear that it's action of like a trigger, not the action of what, what you are doing, the finger's doing. Right. So even though, yeah, the trigger here is forcing that reset forward for you, it's still like 
by strict definition, I believe, and this is what a lot of, you know, obviously folks on our side believe, although I think the ATF is trying to like make this cross this really gray area here and suggest that the, it's really the gun, but they're also basically trying to redefine this whole one action versus two actions thing. And that's pretty clearly already defined in the national firearms act or the, the gun control act and the national firearms act. So, so yeah, uh, what that means is, is the Chevron deference uh, could become a, a factor here. And I don't know that the ATF would receive that deference. And, uh, I don't know. I, I This will be an interesting one to follow in the courts. And I'm sure it's going to get, I, I'm sure we'll be hearing about it in the courts. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. 100%. Chicago crime is obviously on the rise and has been like many major cities. We know that firearm related or firearm, you know, a crime where firearms were involved or used in the commission of the crime have really skyrocketed in the last couple of years. This article, according to USA Today, this is actually a very lengthy article. It's titled, Their Guns Fueled Chicago Crime. When they broke the law, the ATF went easy. Uh, this story, it says, was produced in partnership with The Trace, uh, and but is published on USA Today. Uh, the, the Trace, by the way, and actually I was impressed. That they, they mentioned this in the article, is in part funded by every town. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just keep that in mind. All right. We've talked about that before on the podcast. Uh, I've seen some pretty even keeled reporting on the trace. I've seen also some pretty atrocious stuff. Okay. It's frankly impressive when they do a pretty good job. I'm like, Hmm, for an organization, for a, a, uh, 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 reporting organization, uh, uh, what's the word journalistic organization. There we go. That receives money in part from every town like sometimes impresses me with that everything they do isn't like totally slanted obviously you know against guns um usa today is usually very slanted against guns this is a different article though this is really highlighting i think the the failures not so much of the dealers but the failures of the atf Mm -hmm. i have no problem with that okay we know government agencies and government agents are not perfect we know they make mistakes and this and we i mean everybody knows about Guns being run across the border, right? Ever heard of that little operation? Hmm? <laughs> right? So um, this is just another example of government agency failure. Essentially what this is highlighting is gun dealers in the Chicago area that are on a list. Okay. Guns turn up on gun on crime scenes. Those are, you know, they look into those, they find out which dealer they came from. And there's, you know, essentially this top 10 list, especially there's a top 10 list. There's one that they really focus on. We've even talked about that on the podcast before, mm-hmm. um, highlighting some of that a little bit. And, you know, they what they doing a little bit of digging, it, there seems to be some trends that some that many of these dealers that are on this top 10 list uh have again and again and again and again a very consistent history of repeated uh, violations or errors in you know their uh, following in them following the law with respect to selling guns. Mm-hmm. Okay, now I, I believe a lot of times when errors are made by dealers, um, and I sh- should say this that I I think by and large FFLs are law-abiding folks that do their 
do their best in a very bureaucratic process. And that most of the time when errors are made, they're probably clerical or at the very least unintentional by nature. Do I think that there are some bad dealers out there? Sure, I do. I also think there's probably some dealers, and I suspect there's some on this list that are talked about in this article, that have more of a leadership or management failure. He even talks a little bit about how like there's different employees involved at one particular dealer, and that there may have been some problems and inconsistencies with how gun transactions were handled because of the nature of these different employees being involved. And that was part of why part of the ATF's reasoning on why they didn't proceed with further action against that dealer because it was a failure of multiple different employees. Well, I, I still look at that as being a failure because that's a management failure on the part of that, that, that gun dealer, that FFL. Like you got to make sure your employees are trained and that they're trained consistently and that they know how to do their job properly. That's important too. But really, again, if we break down this article, again, it's very lengthy. You don't have a lot of time to go any further into this. Um, but I think it highlights some some big problems with an agency like the ATF, right? They're coming down hard on us on stuff like this whole 80% receiver deal. But meanwhile, when there's legitimate issues perpetuated by crappy dealers, crappy whether they are intentionally breaking laws or crappy because they unintentionally break them repeatedly and fail to actually correct their actions, the ATF goes light on them and allows things to slide that shouldn't. And we see repeated violations over years and years and sometimes decades from the same dealers. Hmm. This sounds like a problem and it sounds like it rests fully on the shoulders of the ATF. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I will back up every, you know, I, I second everything you said. I, I am a hundred percent in favor of the ATF uh, using the, the, the resources that they have to um, effectively govern uh, uh, or uh, revoke a license from an FFL that is continually knowingly violating the, the regulation or law Right. And we're not talking about accidental something, some clerical error. We're talking about repeatedly that they know that, hey, this is making a top 10 list and in for several years in a row. And I'm totally I, mean, I just looked it up. There are one hundred and thirty three thousand seven hundred sixteen FFLs as in, in the United States as of uh, uh, 2021. Now, number. so the, the vast majority of these these people are doing everything by the book. And when they do violate it, it's something clerical. It's not a big deal. Um, I, you know, the the cynical side of me says, you know, Hey, if you let these FFLs do a lot of damage and, and flood, you know, cities with, with, uh, illegal firearms, because they're not doing what they should, then you can c- crack down on all the FFLs because you lump up all the good ones with the bad ones. And now we have to crack down on all of them. And we, just like with the gun owners, you know, you, you're cracking down on all these FFLs impugning you know, FFLs in general by, because you're not, you're letting a small majority, a small minority do illegal stuff repeatedly and not correcting it. And it, it I thought this was a, a pretty telling uh, article, especially coming from the sources it did or the, the site it did. Yeah. I thought there was one story in particular that was interesting in here. And I don't think it's, it's interesting. <sighs> Like whether the dealer was intentionally doing this or not, I think that's hard to say or hard to prove. And I think that's kind of also what the ATF was 
suggesting here um, that that willful intent is hard to prove. And that's true. Mm-hmm. But there, the one story that kind of stuck out in my mind was how there's one individual uh, and, and it actually starts the article off about uh, one of us uh, with a story of a man that was killed uh, as part of him trying to prevent his gun from, or his car from being taken. He actually jumped mm-hmm. on the car and, uh, and, and the thief drove off with him. And then the thief ended up shooting through the windshield and striking the car owner and killing him. And the gun used in that crime had just been sold either that day or the day before by a dealer in Gary, Indiana. Now I'm not saying it's necessarily that dealer's fault. Okay. But it turns out that, that gun that was used in that crime, um, that the, that, that the dealer was notified by, by police of that fact. Hey, FYI, the dude you sold this gun to that was used the next day to kill somebody in a crime. Like FYI, that's how fast it went from your doorstep as dealer to the, to the criminal's hands. So whoever that dude is, you sold that to watch out for him. That's essentially what they did. Guess what? The dealer sold seven more guns to that same individual over the next 11 days. Dealers, we got to do better with something like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. And again, was that intentional? I don't know. Was that a, fa- a function of there's how many different employees that work at store and they, you know, you know, they, they just, I don't know. But again, I, st- I still think that's a management issue because I think you take that, that dude, you, you, you should know who that guy is. Right. You can go back and review store camera and be like, who was that guy? Put his image up in front of every single cash register in front of every employee's face in that store and say, we ain't selling any more guns to this guy. Cause in one day he bought one and it ended up on a crime scene, right? That's a problem. I just wanted to highlight that story. Cause I thought that was particularly telling yep. as far as when we talk about bad dealers and I legit believe that that dealers is a bad ge- dealer based on that fact alone. Again, whether intentional or not, I'm, I'm not saying, but they're bad if at the very least they fail on the management side of, 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 in, of educating their employees to watch out for a particular individual and not sell him another gun. That's a management failure at the very least, and that's a problem. Right on. Agreed. Concealedcarry.com, our own Matthew Marister reporting. <laughs> Federal judge P320 class action lawsuit will proceed. Not going to spend a ton of time on this, but we do know there's lawsuits that have been pending uh, against uh, Sig Sauer for uh, guns that inadvertently discharge. Um, and it, they have continued to pop up, which I think is remarkable because I have studied the P3 the P320 trigger system, the old version and the new version, the upgraded version. And there there are some lawsuits claiming that the new trigger system is continuing to discharge uh when uh unintended, you know, just just on its own or by a drop or an impact or something like that. You know, like while in the holster kind of thing. And uh I find that really difficult to believe. And there's a great YouTube channel, channel fairly new called Sig Mechanics. He broke down a lot of the same stuff and basically proved my, my viewpoint on this very, like my my own assessment. He validated it. 
by breaking it down, how a trigger system works, and why it's incredibly unlikely that any of these newly upgraded P320 pistols are just randomly discharging. Okay, mm-hmm. it should be virtually impossible. In fact, I I believe the P320, the upgraded trigger on the P320s, is one of the safest on the market. And I'm not, I, that's a bold statement, but I truly, truly believe that based on my, again, I'm intimately familiar with that trigger system. I am a, although not current, but a former, formerly certified P320 armorer. I've also spent time with the Grey Guns crew. I, you know, they showed me how they break down the trigger system and, and assemble their, their, their trigger kits and do, you know, get you the best trigger pull and all that stuff while maintaining safety values. This is something I'm, pretty intimately familiar with and anyway i think these lawsuits are probably bogus uh people that are that are you know looking for money but the uh, the news that we're reporting here today is simply that a judge is allowing uh this class action lawsuit to continue forward at least to yep. the next stage of the game yeah doesn't doesn't mean we, it validates any claims just judge mm-hmm wouldn't uh, uh, give a summary yep. dismissal judgment. So, yep. So we'll see, and we'll continue to update you if that goes any further. Next article, amazing. Concealed carry applications up over 500% in this city. Matthew, which city is that? Well, it's a city that we mentioned or we referenced quite a bit in the defensive gun use episodes. <laughs> Philadelphia, PA. Yeah, so uh, according to the publication, uh, this is, uh, let me pull up the uh, the actual publication that uh, I got this information from. Um, while that loads, I'll give you the numbers. Philadelphia averaged 11,049 and 11,084 concealed carry applications for 2017 through 2020. Uh, in 2021, Philadelphia received 70,789 concealed carry applications, uh, which is an increase of 519% in uh, that one year. And this is from City Life uh, publication in, uh, in Philadelphia, PA. Um, so is you know one of the one of the uh, driving factors I believe is, is the crime that Philadelphia's crime uh, has has peaked. Uh, has gone up dramatically. There's plenty of uh, stories that we've covered documenting how much uh, uh, Philadelphia violent crime has increased. Um, at the same time, during COVID, Philadelphia moved their application to an online application, um, which some are saying, well, that's see, that's the reason. Um, however, that doesn't make sense or doesn't really hold water as um, a lot of agencies went to that method in, uh, during COVID and uh, nationally about a 10% increase uh, for concealed carry permits, um, not even close to the uh, 519% of Philadelphia. So I think that uh, it, crime is a huge driver uh, of concealed carry license applications and the, the concealed, uh, the constitutional carry laws that we see. And so, um, yeah, so this, this was like yeah. eye dropping when I, or, eye popping when I saw a jaw dropping, whatever, um, when I saw this. Yeah. Oh yeah, dude. Yeah. I saw your article. I'm like, Whoa, what? (laughs) Like that's not, 
that is not a small increase by any stretch of the imagination. No. That is that is phenomenal. That mm-hmm. is amazing. So, wow, lots of folks in Pennsylvania and particularly in Philadelphia getting their permits. Good on them. Finally, we get to an article, uh, which actually is out of the uh, 4th District Court, uh, uh, Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, involving a trial uh, of a Macon County Sheriff's Office uh, deputy uh, in the 2018 killing of Scott uh, Knibbs or or Nibs. Um, This is a situation, and by the way, the title of the article is Shooting Case Will Test Limits of Qualified Immunity. And this according to SmokyMountainNews.com. Essentially, the uh, Fourth Circuit Court ruled um, that uh, is is pretty interesting what they what they ruled, uh, suggesting a number of potential changes. I think in procedure for law enforcement with respect to how they handle um, contacting or approaching properties and doors and homeowners in their in their residences what the case ultimately suggested is that homeowners have the right to answer their door armed mm-hmm. and i have to say like that piece of like that is that is i believe 100% correct now i'm not saying it's necessarily always the smartest tactical decision uh, because of some some of the ramifications that you know the, the 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 consequences that can occur by going right to the door with a gun in hand, um, but you have the it's it's sort of like an open carry versus concealed carry thing. I think one thing I think one of those is a smarter tactical choice than another. Um, I also think you don't have to answer doors. I also think that uh, you can use you know things like uh, cameras and security systems, you know, to get you know. So there's a lot of other things we can do that are smarter tactically with respect to a late night knock or banging or pounding on the door. Okay, but the right here was a, was reaffirmed and established that you, as the homeowner, under the Fourth Amendment uh, and the Second Amendment. And even the 14th Amendment comes up in this case. You have the right to answer your door of your home with a gun in your hand. Right. You just can't be pointing it at the officer if it happens to be an officer there. It, 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 then it's, it becomes reasonable for the officer to believe that right. you're, gonna, you know, you're posing a deadly threat. So you can be armed, yes. Um, and I think that's the point of this case is mm-hmm. to say, like, yes, we normally give officers have qualified immunity if they, you know, um, and, and sometimes, you know, it, it affords them, um, the, the privileges that maybe, you know, given 2020 hindsight, the, the situation could have been handled differently, but because of the nature of their job and what they have to do. But in this case, you know, uh, the officer shot through the window and the content, the, the point of contention is not was the person armed? It was, well, was he pointing the gun at the officer? And if he was, wasn't, which is claimed, um, the officer's claiming he did, uh, point the gun at him. Uh, there's somebody that, you know, even sort uh, evidence that suggests uh, or is interpreted as maybe the gun wasn't pointed at him. And so therefore he shouldn't have qualified immunity because he should be able to open the door and just have a gun at, at you know at his side or whatever, and um, 
And so if that's the case, then yeah, a jury should look at the evidence and be able to determine, Hey, we, you know, we side with this or that. And so I'm all, I'm all good with it. Um, I would say just in this case, uh, specifically that, uh, the dude's blood alcohol was three times the, the limit. So tactically speaking, let's not grab guns when we're hammered and respond to the knock at the door. Um, you know, because it's just probably not the smartest thing to do, whether or not it's illegal or not, you know, notwithstanding. But I think you covered that, that well. <laughs> cool. Well, that brings us to the end of our articles, our news, our industry news, if you will, today. Uh, so we're going to get now to our, our gear reviews. Uh, we're a little bit over time, so we'll go through these hopefully as efficiently as we can. I'm going to let Matthew go first and share with us his product review in today's episode. Yeah. So I'm going to go, uh, pretty quick since we're short on time, but, uh, I think I mentioned on a podcast earlier that, uh, Varda concealed carry makes some, uh, they're making clothing for concealed carriers that don't look like, you know, uh, uh, your typical range gear, uh, for example, um, this polo shirt. All right. It's like a nice, uh, athletic style polo with the, uh, with the spandex type material, very sharp looking polo. Uh, it doesn't look like, you know, your typical, uh, concealed carry gear, but it is made with a double layer on the inside around the, the, the bottom half of it basically has a sewn in undershirt. So you can tuck that that bottom layer into your pants and um, have some material behind your gun. And, and that way for comfort, uh, you know, you, so your, uh, your grip isn't rubbing up against your body. So um, pretty cool. I've, I've used this uh, withheld washing and everything still materials really good. Um, I find it works really well. A little bit on the expensive side, but if you're looking for something um, maybe for a more dressy or uh, appearance like that and you don't like wearing a, a complete T-shirt for heat or whatever, um, you could check that out. They also make uh, a pair of sweatpants that I've been wearing, which is cool. I like sweatpants, um, but this these have like a – the only way I can describe it as a fabric belt loop uh, sewn on the inside of the waistband and you thread your belt through there and clip your holster. So uh, uh, different than say using the Enigma, which is, you know, uh, if you're trying to carry it, your firearm without a, with pants that don't use a belt, you'd have to go with Enigma or belly band or something. But this, uh, you actually use your holster, your belt, thread it through here. Um, and it works really well. It's comfortable. Uh, the pants, again, uh, good quality material, wa held up several washes. I've had these for like four months now, um, really comfortable. And so if you're looking, if you wear athletic clothes a lot or like, you know, if you like sweatpants, um, again, a little bit on the expensive side, they're, they're made in the United States. So therefore, you know, a little bit higher, the quality of material is really good. Um, but uh, yeah, check it out. It's Varda uh, Concealed Carry. And uh, I did a review video and write up on concealcare.com. So if you're interested, you can check that out. Awesome. Thanks, bro. Appreciate your, uh, your review on that. And, uh, uh, you know, it's always cool to see new products, more innovations, et cetera, come to the concealed carry market. I, I, I truly believe we're in the golden age of concealed carry because there's just so much innovation happening there. Not all are equal uh, or created equal. Not all are as awesome as others. Uh, some products, frankly, are dumb. I think this is a smart idea. 
Uh, I think it's incredibly expensive. Uh, even personally as a serious concealed carrier, I just don't see myself buying one of those. Um, but I applaud them for coming up with a, a clever idea and a way of doing concealed carry, uh, making it fashionable and more comfortable and whatever. Good stuff. Agreed. My review today is of the Double Alpha Academy Lynx Competition Belt. I have it right here. Uh, for those of you that are on a video with me uh, today, I will... Uh, show this to you while I discuss it a little bit. So um, this is a really interesting product. Now, I know for some of you, you may not be competitive shooters, um, but this is this is really ultimately just a gun belt, although one that you would just, you know, wear at the range. I doubt you'd be wearing this around, you know, publicly or for concealed carry or anything like that. Um, so it's intended to be very stiff for the purpose of carrying a gun, right? And having it be secure and stable and doesn't move around on you when you draw or, uh, or move or do manipulations and things like that. Um, but uh, it's a clever idea. I mean, it's called the Lynx Belt, which I think they spell L-Y-N-X. Um, but really what it is, it's comprised of a bunch of different individual polymer Reinforced polymer links. So you see that those links bend. They're each about an inch and a quarter to an inch and a half wide. Uh, and they link together. And so this is pretty interesting because what you end up with is a belt that is incredibly rigid up and down, which is the most important plane. And then horizontally, it uh, conforms to basically any shape that you want. This is great because it actually helps them improve comfort because it's going to conform to your body however it is shaped at least in the you know in, in the in the profile if you will of your body if you did a cross section of your of your belly or your waist where you carry your gun this is you know if if I'm more uh, peanut shape but you're more of an oval and somebody else is more of a circle etc cetera, etc cetera, like this is gonna work equally well for any one of those those body shapes or types it's a very innovative approach and, and frankly i think a better approach than the traditional gun belt which is more like this one which happens to be a favorite of mine as well this is a uh uh, uh, uh dominate defense uh, gun belt very stiff very rigid but you'll see it wants to be more of a circle and my waist is not circle shaped so this this is sort of like the lynx belt sort of like the outside waistband or uh, competition equivalent of the of the foundation belt from EDC belt company, right? The foundation belt that I wear for concealed carry on a daily basis, I'm wearing right now, uh, does a great job of conforming to your body because of its unique variable stiffness that's built throughout it. Um, the the Lynx belt is kind of this, a similar approach. Now, the other cool thing about this is you can then essentially roll the belt up like I am showing you here now. And it ends up other than, you know, how the holster there kind of extends off of it. It ends up a lot more compact than, than this one. Right. Very cool. So that's a really cool, innovative idea. And I, I, I love seeing innovation and I was a little unsure if I'd like this belt, but, but the answer is I really, really like this belt. Um, I'm not as keen about two things. I'll say number one, I'm not as keen about how the buckle attaches. Okay. To the two ends of the belt. Um, 
but I've seen some folks adding a ratcheting belt system to this in lieu of the built-in belt uh, buckle. And I think that's a smarter approach and probably what I'm going to end up doing to uh, as, a, as a modification to this belt. Um, it, it just like the current buckle works okay. It just, it doesn't seem as secure to, to me as what I think I would like. Like I haven't seen any evidence of it failing or coming loose. I just, think I'd like a little bit more reassurance uh, as a serious competitor, if I'm going to actually wear this in, in competing. So um, that's the first thing. And the second thing is that you have to assemble this thing yourself. And if you're not super handy, or if you just don't have the time, this might not be the belt for you. Cause it took me a good solid 30 plus minutes to, you literally have to take each one of these links, put them together and pound a pin through them. Okay. And part of the reason for that, I, I understand is the fact that when you order this, you put in your waist size and they're going to send you the exact number of links that you need for your waist size, right? Which is kind of a clever way of handling belt sizing. And also it's a belt that can grow or decrease in size along with you and your changing bodies uh, size. So that's a really cool, clever way, but it does, it does require you to do some assembly on your part. So that's probably my, my two big knocks against it. But other than that, it is a solid product and uh, really like it. That's the Double Alpha Academy Lynx Competition Belt. Very cool, man. Very cool. Yep. So we need to let you all go now at this time. Uh, but before we do, we've got to announce our weekly podcast giveaway winner. This week, what are we giving away, Matthew? We're giving away that 2A Defender t-shirt. Cool. 2A Defender t-shirt. Uh, this will be, of course, you know, in whatever size the person says they need. And as a reminder, when, when we contact you, if you're a winner, you need to respond within, was it 72 hours to make sure you claim your, your, your winnings, your prize. Um, so just a heads up there, watch your email inboxes. If, uh, you signed up for the giveaway, that's where you'll be contacted next week. What are we giving away as part of the giveaway? We're giving away one of those awesome barrel blocks that you were talking about. So barrel block, free barrel block in the caliber of your choice, I presume? Yes. Cool. Folks, don't forget the way, the place and the and the way you sign up for the podcast is by going to concealedcarry.com forward slash podcast prize. Fill out a couple little boxes of information, uh, fill it out, or and then sign up, and bam, you're in the in the in the sign up or in the uh, giveaway for the week. But you do need to do it each week if you want to be included in this next week's giveaway. So go to concealedcarry.com forward slash podcast prize each week and sign up. Don't forget, and also know that if you share with friends and family, if you share that, you you can generate a share link and share that. You'll get extra entries each time one of your one of your folks, one of your friends or family or coworkers or whomever uh, sign up as well. You'll get extra entries. So. Uh, Good little uh, tidbit there. Who is our winner this week? The winner this week is Jake from State Farm. Jake from State Farm. <laughs> no, Jake <laughs> R. Jake R. You're the lucky winner. Congrats, Jake R. Uh, awesome. We'll make sure that we get that shirt sent over to you, Jake. So with that, guys, thanks again for supporting our podcast. A reminder of today's episode sponsors, Barrel Block, BarrelBlock with a K.com, and Range Tech Shot Timers, which can be found at rangetechtimer.com. So until next time, in fact, here in a little bit, Jacob and I, I believe, will be on again for today's second episode that we'll be recording. And so until then, a reminder to train right, train safe, or train right, train often, and train safe. 
so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care. A reminder that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws, but things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.